everyone. I'm Linda McHenry, host of The Writer's Voice. And my guest today is DeWitt Henry, a writer, editor, and teacher. How are you, DeWitt? I'm fine. I have no Mick in my last name, but... Hey, you know, you, not everybody can be as lucky as me. <laughs> so we are going to talk about you being an editor and the fact that you're a founding editor of a magazine. We're going to talk about memoirs. And then you have a special thing you want to talk to us about, Eternal Ribbons. So first, though, why don't you tell us about your book that's coming out? in the month of April, correct? Yes, it is out, even though I haven't seen it. It's available on <laughs> amazon.com. And it's called Endings and Beginnings, Family Essays. And it's a collection of published pieces that date back in time, maybe anywhere from 10 to 15 years, but they're arranged in a way that is unusual. And this is a memoir, right? That's correct. That will be available and people can find that when it's available. Other than Amazon, they'll find it on your website as well, right? And hopefully in bookstores. <laughs> and hopefully in bookstores, even more importantly in bookstores, right? Absolutely. So tell us about your experience founding that magazine. It's a very interesting story. It was 50 years ago. Vietnam War was tailing down. I had been to the University of Idaho Writers Workshop and uh, came back to, uh, to finish a degree at Harvard. Now, I was living in Cambridge down the street from a bar called The Plow and the Stars, which was an Irish pub. <laughs> and I was uh, kind of uh, unversed in Irish pubs, I guess. It had been a place where mailmen hung out <laughs> after they delivered the mail, but it, it became Irish. Uh -huh. It turned out that Irish pubs have a wonderful literary tradition. And one of the founders of this pub was a man named Peter O'Malley, and he was the, the bartender. And I stopped in there one day as a Harvard graduate student. And uh, we started chatting and he, and he said, well, you know, I've been thinking about starting a literary magazine. I thought, oh, well, I did that in college. Um, and I actually did it way before college. I started writing at the age of about seven or eight or nine. And I was given one Christmas a little toy printing press. And I was under the spell of Benjamin Franklin and the, the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, where there was a real printing press with real type. I remember getting those as a kid, those little things with the ink, right? You'd stamp them. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So in any case, he said, well, in Ireland, the pubs put out broadsheets and we were thinking about doing a broadsheet, but the gang that was interested of poets and local writers didn't deliver. And, and, and so as time has passed, we thought we would do a magazine. Why not a magazine? He said, well, I know something about that. I'd love to join you. And we were joined by another bunch of guys around the same age. They were all men at the time, but uh, later women joined us. And uh, everybody chipped in their own work, of course, mm -hmm. but also the work of, of people they admired and had in their journey as students uh, been taught by or been fans of or whatever. So we came up with a, a first issue, and it looks like this. Oh, wow. Look this at is, that. This is the first issue. I can tell. <laughs> Look at that. A first edition, huh? <laughs> um, and it, it sold for, I think, $2. <laughs> hey, you know, you got to start uh, somewhere, right? It was done by the sweat of the brow and, and resourcefulness. And mm -hmm. uh, one person knew somebody who was a printer in the South End and that, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And time took the place of money. So, so the bar put up the first half of the printing bill in exchange for my putting in time learning how to be an offset printer um, <laughs> and to uh, do all the opaquing and masking. Mm -hmm. and all. It's more photography than anything to do with type. Yeah. But that started it. And um, the group were their own literary community who, who had come from different places at a, at a time when there was a generation gap and everybody would, felt dissident about 
being shut out somehow. Mm -hmm. And the idea of plowshares was was instead of as writers taking pot shots at one another or just being dismissive, you know, you arrogant person, what makes you think you're a writer, you know, uh -huh. to join forces in the face of being rejected by what we thought of as the establishment, which was mm -hmm. the Atlantic Monthly and the New Yorker and mm -hmm. commercial markets. Mm -hmm. And so from the beginning, it, it was a kind of cooperative process. And we added onto that the idea of revolving editorship. So O'Malley and I would, O'Malley would take care of the business, so-called, mm -hmm. and I would take care of the editorial side of it mm -hmm. um, and the production. But after I edited that first issue, mm -hmm. then another person who was in this beginning group um, took over and edited the next one, and then the next one, and the next mm -hmm. one. And it was called a quarterly, but they, in the beginning, it was hard to get out for it one year. <laughs> mm. But we got better at it. And it, it was always a, a mission. Everybody was zealous. Everybody believed in emerging literature, not just their own talents. But Don't you think the products are better because of all the effort and the heart and the sweat and everything that goes into it? Well, it worked with cathedrals, didn't it, in the Middle Ages? <laughs> Yeah, there's some architect, you know, said, OK, the uh, Notre Dame, you know, ought to look like this. But, right, but everybody right. chipped in and built the flying buttresses and did the stained glass. And that's that's sort of what this was. It was a cathedral, a cathedral of letters. I think you can feel the heart in that when you read it, when you listen to it, when you look at it. I think you can you can hear that. And and I think some people downplay the importance of editing. And, and tell me about your thoughts about that, because I know we've talked a little bit about that. Some people think editing isn't a big deal. And. Uh, I don't agree with that, and I'm guessing you don't. From the beginning, by having writers edit this magazine, we we're already saying, hey, there are some people out there that call themselves editors. And it's the writers that really understand the poem or the story or the vision or the necessity. If they're really the unacknowledged legislators of their times, if they're the ones that are writing news that stays news, then they should be the ones that advocate for writing that matters. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, too, is reading and writing and what you like and what is popular is such a subjective thing. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to find your own audience or the right audience because just be, I mean, I can write something and you may not like it. That doesn't mean it's lousy. It just means Absolutely. you don't like it. That's the accident of my paying attention to you. Right. And also what my culture is, what my values are. And editing is the same thing. You know, not everybody likes mystery or thrillers or, or memoir or biography or historical fiction. And that colors what you do. So talk to us a little bit about memoir, because that's something you specialize in. And I know that there are a lot of people who are interested in it. And you have some people who think that memoir should be more fictionalized and other people think it should be, oh no, absolute truth. So you know, I know there's a lot of different perspectives on that. So why don't you give us your perspective on that? Well, I lived that revolution. And as a believer in pure fiction, one of my, my mentors and, and heroes was a writer named Richard Yates. And uh, one of the early interviews I did as, as a uh, statement, in a way, in editing Plowshares was to interview Richard Yates. And um, we talked about what he called the objective correlative, um, which is actually something at taste. T.S. Eliot uh, mm -hmm. advocated, uh, that you never write about yourself. He said that would be like dropping your pants in Macy's window. It would be exhibitionism. <laughs> and that the art of fiction is the art of telling a story about somebody who isn't you, 
even a story about somebody who is extremely different from you, mm -hmm. that's a kind of essential discipline that delivers objectivity. So, mm -hmm. so that you, you do away with self-indulgence, self-pity, self-aggrandizement, mm -hmm. uh, confessionalism, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I spent 13 years writing a novel called The Marriage of Anime Pots. And mm -hmm. I had come from a uh, candy manufacturing family in Philadelphia and a small chocolate factory mm -hmm. that had 40 employees. And, and my father and older brothers who, who were all working in the factory would come home when I was younger and they, they would have stories to tell about these people mm -hmm. as if they were different, mm -hmm. uh, as if they were amusing or mm -hmm. scary in some mm -hmm. way. So part of my pre-70s rebellion was to, um, to turn the tables. And from that privileged perspective, bring everything that I could to the problem of um, telling a story about factory workers. Mm -hmm. And it's called The Marriage of Anime Pots. Mm -hmm. it took me all that time because mm -hmm. I, I was self-searching. And it turns out that what I was doing without knowing it was I was mythologizing the tensions in my own family, mm -hmm. my own parents' marriage, mm -hmm. in terms of this fiction, which is basically a Cinderella story. The, uh, mm -hmm. Both of the main characters, the woman was uh, a supervisor in the packaging uh, section of the factory, and the, the he was a foreman who was a womanizing and unionized kind of bossy man, but who had a, a secret tragedy, which is that his wife was dying uh, and he had grown children, but he also had a 13-year-old retarded daughter. Those were real facts, actually, facts mm -hmm. that I had mm -hmm. heard mm -hmm. over the dinner table, mm -hmm. but I, I had to learn my way into his shoes. And I walked in his shoes and I, mm -hmm. I learned his style, his language, his stream mm -hmm. of consciousness. And I also learned hers. And uh, the issue of, of gender jumping was interesting. Mm -hmm. I started reading Colette and Jane Austen, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, all the really wonderful uh, women novelists um, in search for how there were details that having large buttons, for instance. You needed to find a woman's voice and a woman's perspective. Exactly. And, yeah. and th that was the art. And it was a hard art. Yeah, and and of course behind it, I was coming of age. I was, uh, you know, I finished college. I was a graduate student. I was I was isolated and lonely, and um, met a wonderful woman and married her. A head start teacher, and, uh -huh. um, started to have children, and I was still writing this novel. Uh -huh. At some point, I mean, that novel did get published. It got published and and won an award called the Peter Taylor Prize for the novel at the University of Tennessee Press. Uh -huh. But after I was much older. Uh, after my children were in the world and, and uh, um, I'd gotten a teaching job to support my family. So I, I didn't think I had time to write another novel. I, th I thought, you know, what's really been eating at me, what drives me to write is my witnessing of family mm -hmm. and my older brothers and sisters and the story of my parents. And mm -hmm. my father was a recovering alcoholic, even though mm -hmm. he wanted to be a respectable businessman and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. My mother was a very gifted um, painter, and, and she made the decision to stay with our family mm -hmm. uh, when she learned that he, in addition to recovering, having to go into a, an institute, had a real breakdown, and he mm -hmm. had an affair, and, and it just about broke the marriage. Mm -hmm. But, but she, she sacrificed herself, or she made us feel that she had sacrificed and martyred <laughs> herself. Um, and that we were, you know, so so we were survivors, um, and there was a certain survivor burden on each of us to to be worthy of of uh, the pain in the past. And by fictionalizing that, 
you feel the same emotions that your characters feel, but your readers do too. And like you said, you can share that with your readers without actually telling your own personal story detail by detail. By it's detail. very difficult to get published. It did win an award. Yeah, but that was the book you needed to write. Yes, but it didn't get distributed. It didn't get made into a film. People that read it loved it. But then mm-hmm. because it was a university press, it, mm-hmm. it just it didn't have the exposure that would find a mm-hmm. large audience. Uh, it yeah. wasn't commercial. And that's the thing, you know, that we can't always get every single thing we want, but there is something that you can share that everybody is going to love. Okay. And it has to do with love and it has to do with eternal ribbons. You and I talked a little bit about this. We agree about the philosophy, but I would really appreciate it if you would share your perspective on it, because I think my listeners are going to love it. When that book didn't get widely recognized, it broke my heart, the heart that had spent 13 Mm -hmm. years on the art to make it happen. So that's when I thought, I don't have time to sell the story as fiction um, that is eating at me and has been since I was a kid. So that's when I started writing memoir. Started, I say, my mother was still alive. My father had died. I had to do a lot of research. I listened to her version. I listened to the versions of the past from my sister, my brothers. Mm -hmm. And I had to relate them to what I was discovering about myself and my own family, my own children, my own decisions Mm -hmm. as a parent and the stresses of having to provide for them. became a teacher to provide for my family. And um, it made my growth as a writer be marginalized, uh, or at least in tension. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one had ever told me about that, but I had to learn it on my pulses the way that uh, other grown-ups learn from their conflicts. So it turns out that the work of my life was, in fact, memoir, that, that I've now published a trilogy, actually, since the novel that I wrote. And it felt revolutionary to do such a thing. It, it, it went against everything that I'd been taught to write memoir. Now, this was a time when, actually, Mary Carr, who was one of our, our gang <laughs> early on as a poet with the magazine, went on to publish The Liars Club. And Frank Conroy had a wonderful book, Stop Time, and he later became a very close friend. Tobias Wolf is younger than Frank Conroy, but he learned from Frank Conroy's work, and they, they all become national bestsellers. So, mm-hmm. so there was in the state of publishing, in what we call those editors, mm-hmm. who uh, don't create taste, they follow taste, <laughs> had learned that there was money out there in this field. Um, so the idea of literary memoir, I mean, usually memoirs are written by successes. Benjamin Franklin, how, this is how I, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, how you get to be a, an inventor and a, all that kind of stuff. Have your face on money, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dale Carnegie. Um, but, you know, in terms of write, the how-to writing books, they, they were written by bestsellers. Uh-huh. But about that time in the late 60s, early 70s, well, later than that, mid-70s, these different things started to work together. There was a postmodern movement in, in writing fiction. They, they, they questioned the traditional storytelling um, that wanted to, uh, to say that, you know, the, the expectation for truth in the portrayal of society and of the growth of individuals and family backgrounds and everything else is only a fiction <laughs> to begin with. And the, the, the pattern fictions of, say, Henry James uh, don't work in our world. We've had a Holocaust. We, you know, we were born after a Second World War. We, now we're fighting in Vietnam. We have the revolution called 
feminism. We have the revolution called minority rights. We have the technological revolution, but everything has changed so extremely that it's confusing. <laughs> and the writer's role is to make sense of what's confusing, um, to, to tap the distress uh, that that is zeitgeist, that is the common experience of being in our times. So actually using the model of Maxine Gorky's trilogy of childhood in the world and, and my universities. I applied that to my life and, and the first book was called Sweet Dreams and it's and it was about the early the earliest things that I had experienced, mm -hmm. which is basically a coming of age in this crowded family that mm -hmm. had dysfunctional issues. Then I had a second book or chapters or episodes <laughs> that I called Safe Suicide. And um, that was my midlife. It was time of midlife crisis, but it was also a time of social crisis. I think for the worst year in my life, simply bad times, uh, difficulty teaching, difficulty having a second child, uh, difficulty being published uh, in terms of my ambitions. So I came through what, whatever my mm -hmm. personal demons were in safe suicide mm -hmm. rather than an unsafe suicide. So the book that I just have coming out now is uh, the concluding of the three. And from my mm -hmm. midlife recovery as a person and also our societies, I think, recovery in some ways. These are the stories of the lives of my older brothers and sister and uh, their children. So when you get to this ribbon idea, I was looking for a cover, mm -hmm. and uh, I'd always been fascinated by the work of M.C. Escher, uh, who is an illusionist from Holland, but it's famous for optical illusions. There'll be, there'll be stairs that you don't know if they're coming up or going down. Okay. Um, so what I chose was a painting or a sketch uh, called Bond of Union, and it's a man and a woman they're they're made of of strips of themselves. Uh, it's it's like the the orange has been peeled, and and it, and the orange connects them, or the peels connect them, as the uh, watcher's eye is forced to follow the progress of this spiraling strip. So that that's the way that this last book is organized. Right. No beginnings, no endings. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us here on The Writer's Voice. People can find you on your website at dewitthenry.com. And your book is coming out or is out now. You just don't have it, but they can find it on Amazon and bookstores near you. And that's Beginnings and Endings. Is that the title that's of the it? title with an ampersand for the end. There you go. Okay. DeWitt Henry, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Linda. It's been a pleasure. 